Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And joining us for the beginning of this week's show, because it's a very special week here at Vanity Fair, is our West Coast editor, Britt Hennemuth. Hello, Britt. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Um, Britt, you're here because the Hollywood issue is out in the world. It's uh, an annual favorite of mine. I think all of us really grew up with these issues, reading them and, you know, imagining being part of something like this. And Britt, you are really in the trenches on the Hollywood issue more than any of the rest of us. Um, It's really beautiful this year. So first of all, congratulations. How are you feeling now that people can see it? Feels like we've given birth. It does. It's... um... (laughs) It, it is a nine-month ordeal, mm-hmm. and uh, it is exciting to see our baby out in the world. It was an incredible group of people. I think the last couple of years, um, as you'll recall, we focused really in your world of, of potential nominees and the Oscars race and sort of the exciting mix of ages and prestige projects and things like that. And this year, we really noticed that there was this rising class over the last couple of years of really tremendous actors that have sort of anointed themselves as the next wave. And none of them have been on a Hollywood cover before. So that was really important to us. That's amazing. I like, I kind of had to triple check that when I, I know, that. same, I was shocked. And, you know, I think it speaks to how all of them, you know, some of them have been working forever. Some of them are just popping with, you know, a role or two in the last year, but they've really sort of anointed themselves as, fixtures in our culture and fixtures in Hollywood. So I hear you. It's surprising that they, you know, it feels like a lot of them have been with us for a long time, but but this is their first time and it was a really fun mix. I love that you didn't focus on uh, Oscar contenders and yet you have two on the front <laughs> fold. It's like such a happy accident. Well, we wanted the mix. You know, I think before yeah. it was like kind of just just people um, campaigning and then and this year we wanted, you know, the Oscar hopefuls, the box office hits, the, you know, you look at Selena Gomez, she's the most followed woman in Hollywood of her generation and has been at this for a long time and is now producing and obviously with a lot of attention for Only Murders um, and then the potential Working Girl reboot. There's just 
you know, there's a lot of ways to be involved and be driving the conversation in Hollywood right now, in and out of the Oscar race. So, um, especially with this group of young people, you know, they're 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 in Hollywood in ways that when we look back at some of the older Hollywood covers, uh, talent couldn't be before. They're they're all really in control of their narrative. They're in control of of who they are and and the roles they pick and the projects they endorse. And several of them have production companies of their own, which you know. Even five years ago, people of their age did not have that sort of control. So it's fun to see all of them in the same room. And and also what was so special is, you know, look, we, we wanted to take all safety precautions seriously. So we have not photographed a Hollywood issue quite like this in three years where everyone yeah. is in the same room. Um, everyone was able to sort of meet. and And that's the special sauce that only Vanity Fair can do. Yeah. I, I, so for uh, my contribution to the cover, I talked to Austin Butler, who's right front and center. Um, and he kind of talked about having worked with Selena Gomez when they were on Wizards of Waverly Place as children. And, and then also like running into Jonathan Majors over the course of the awards season circuit. So the, the idea that they're they're overlapping in all these ways in their lives and then kind of get to cross paths on this shoot. It, it feels like it's capturing a moment in a way that I think you only get when you get this like specific generation of people who have come up together and who are you know making their fortunes together, too. Totally. And it's funny because, you know, like, to your point about Anna Dharmas, she's been such a fixture for all of us with Blonde and the the race and um, her performances. and and But then to see her sort of meeting Selena Gomez, who she's known and been in her sort of cultural context for, you know, 20 plus years, however long um, Selena's been working, uh, was kind of cute to see her fangirl out. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cute. Um, so, Rebecca, you talked to Jonathan Majors in terms in terms of interviews for this cover. Did you talk to someone else besides him, too? I know some of us did double duty. Yeah, Hoyan. Okay, yeah. So um, what did you learn just kind of getting that glimpse into this um, future of Hollywood from those interviews? Well, I think, you know, it was really interesting because he kept talking about uh, Michael B. Jordan's a movie star. And at one point I was like, Jonathan, you're becoming a movie star. You're like the lead <laughs> bad guy in the Marvel movies. Like, And he was saying how he's kind of... Um, grappled with that word because in drama school, you know, that word was kind of a bad word. Like no one wanted to be a movie star. You wanted to be an actor and an artist and and sort of uh, taking on the responsibilities that come with, you know, that level of stardom and influence is something I think a lot of these young actors are still grappling with and sort of figuring out what is a movie star in this in this new generation I thought was really interesting. David, what did Florence Pugh have to say about being a movie star? Um, I think for Florence Pugh, she's coming off of a, a big and, to outside observers at least, somewhat dramatic year, uh, in which she had lead roles in Don't Worry Darling and The Wonder. Um, she politely declined to discuss Don't Worry Darling and whatever happened around that. But she was very open and candid about particularly her relationship with social media, um, which is something a number of these uh, cover subjects talk about, because it is very, very difficult to, on the one hand, as someone with a huge public profile, reveal yourself in a way that is open and frank and vulnerable, uh, all the things that we love from people on social media. And on the other hand, protect your privacy, protect your image, and protect what it is that people love about you. And Florence Pugh had a beloved Instagram coming into 2022, and then suddenly Every single post, every single word was scrutinized that she put out there. And she did talk very openly about having to negotiate 
exactly what her relationship to it is, having to put it away, uh, and thinking more about the fact that she is a public figure and what that requires of her. Um, so I, I did appreciate that. And I think you see with a lot of these people, um, to Britt's point, as they are sort of emerging as this new class, uh, a negotiation around what that exactly entails for them as people who are leading a conversation. I think the conversation around sort of protecting their mental health and also openly speaking about it is something really unique in this generation. Uh, Hoyan, who starred in Squid Game and had this sort of insane rise to stardom, you know, talked about how she needed to sort of protect herself and, and take a break after the year that was Squid Game because it just became overwhelming for her mentally. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of young stars talk a lot more openly about mental health. So I think that's something that this generation really has put a value on. And and is sort of erasing that stigma with, which is, is really, I think, a positive change. Yeah. Um, Bert, for people listening to the show, I, they might not realize that you generally know things well ahead of us. Like you're talking to people's reps a year before they have a big movie coming out that they think they have Oscar hopes for. You've kind of got the the advanced word. And, you know, for knowing as much about many of these people as you, as you do and having followed their careers, what did you learn about this group by putting them all together in one place? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I do benefit definitely from sort of inheriting some semblance of putting this cover together. So people, and people like, you know, part of the reason I work here is for this cover. Part of the reason we all do, we love this cover and, and studios and publicity firms and agencies really love this cover too. So I hear about these performances and I hear about these things from people who don't even have any business in promoting performances <laughs> uh, to get friends or loved ones on this cover well in advance. Um, I think what I learned this year about everyone is, and it's a boring, cheesy answer, but these are all great, nice people. And I'm not going to say that we've had years before that we weren't working <laughs> with great, nice people, but there was not, um, to Rebecca's point, David's point, you know, they are erasing the stigmas around the sort of pratfalls of Hollywood. And these mm -hmm. are, um, these are smart, solid artists, and they have a good head on their shoulders. And I know that's probably <laughs> not the juiciest answer, but um, but I I learned that we're in good hands if this is the next wave of Hollywood. Yeah, I love the optimistic tone that um, Anthony Bresnikan, our colleague, kind of struck in the essay he wrote to accompany this, being like, like, if this is who we've got, like Hollywood is in good shape. And it's not necessarily the automatic thing people say. You know, we had the box office got better last year, but it's not necessarily solid. Um, and even if movie star means something different for them than it did for Leonardo DiCaprio 30 years ago, um, I think you're right, Britt, that like they are going to lead us toward a, a brighter future or whatever it looks like. And they have, you know, they they oscillate so seamlessly between film, television, producing, documentary. You know what I mean? Like they they have a good handle on on how the modern audience is consuming content. Um, so you know, in a world where there are a lot more movies, a lot more TV coming out, and we don't generate as a as an industry movie stars quite like we once did. They are certainly stars in their own right, and each of them have such specific fan bases as well. And that was really fun to sort of to sort of watch and glean from from the reactions of people at the studio, <laughs> sort of watching <laughs> certain people working the front desk or PAs at Milk uh, just sort of, you know, just freaking out over Squid Games or freaking out over the bear. Or, you know, even one guy was like, I loved Bullet Train. Johnson <laughs> was leaving. So, um, you know, it was it was a fun mix. 
Um, we are recording this before it's live, but we can definitely predict which of these images are going to be are are being talked about uh, Ooh, breathlessly which? on Twitter right now. Well, I mean, uh, do we want to make predictions? I feel like uh, yeah, the I want to hear your prediction. <laughs> I feel like Aaron Taylor Johnson. I mean, if if this is not a huge thing right now, I will be surprised. But <laughs> we're anyway. not here to objectify anybody. <laughs> we're but not there are here some to people, objectify. There are some people who are showing off incredible assets, uh, and I think they deserve to be celebrated. Absolutely. But yes, to that point, um, Britt, I'm curious just about what you can share uh, of the concept of this very sexy, very uh, enjoyable to look at shoot and um, how what it's like wrangling it. Because as you mentioned, you have to get all these people together and it feels very complicated from our perspective. I think that's where the nine months come in. <laughs> <laughs> we have this vision, we have this idea. And then of course, it's planes, trains, automobiles. They are, you know, a dozen of the, the busiest, most prolific people of their generation. So to get them in the same room, same city at the same time does take nine months. So, you know, and actually I think we were, some of my colleagues and I were speaking about this. I think this is the year that racks up the most frequent flyer mile, miles. Today. <laughs> um, we had people coming in from Jordan, Budapest, Paris, uh, South Korea, uh, London, we, Australia. I mean, people who participated in this cover were on the ground in LA, some of them for less than 24 hours, I think was the minimum. Some people came in to do this. They got their shot, slept, flew right back to a set. So a lot of uh, thanks <laughs> from Vanity Fair goes out to many of these participants who took long journeys to be there. But um I, the concept really came from Stephen Klein, who photographed the cover this year. He was pulling references of the Viper Room and sort of, as we talked about this younger class, there were echoes of the Brat Pack and the 90s movie star and, you know, Leo and Kate Moss and Johnny Depp and people leaving the Viper Room and sort of what the Sunset Strip was to that sort of 90s heartthrob era. And so we wanted to sort of... we essentially rebuilt the Viper Room um, as our set. And then Patty Wilson, our incredible stylist, fresh off of her CFDA win, um, came in and sort of created this world where it was as if they had gone to the Oscars, then they'd perhaps gone to the Vanity Fair Oscar party, and then <laughs> at four in the morning, they'd found themselves at the Viper Room for one last uh, ounce of celebration. And so they're, you know, dressed up in the sort of glamorous... Vanity Fair Hollywood cover moment that we all love and know, but there is a more um, end-of-the-night youthful twist to all of it, which is fun. I love how the table seems sticky, even though it's not. Like, there's this, like, <laughs> lived-in, grungy vibe about it, and that contrast is, I think, what makes it so exciting. Like, the details and seeing what everyone's wearing and the jewelry and the shoes and, like, whose hand is where. There's like That's my favorite part of a Hollywood cover, I think. It's like this painting that you can get lost in for hours. Totally. I know we're pre-recording this, but I'm always surprised and I'm excited for tomorrow because I'm always surprised what people pick up. I remember the year that Elizabeth Debicki and Tessa Thompson's fingers were sort of touching like, yes. like the Sistine <laughs> Chapel. Uh, and it was like it broke the Internet. for. And, you know, we don't we stare down this photo. We live in this picture for so long. It's almost like <laughs> you miss these little moments that suddenly the world um fixates on. So I'm excited for, for what's to come. Well, Britt, we'll let you go. Uh, and you have uh, some celebration of the Hollywood issue and some work to do. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Britt. 
Okay, well, we were gathering stars in many different locations, not just on the cover of the Vanity Fair Hollywood issue this week. Um, Rebecca, over the weekend, you went up to Santa Barbara um, and you got to spend a lot of like way more quality time than I realized with the actors who were being uh, acknowledged at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. Um, How do Jamie Lee Curtis, Angela Bassett and Kate Blanchett have the energy to be on stage for two hours at a film festival at this stage in the campaign? Yeah, I had totally forgotten that these sit downs with them were two hours long. So about an hour in, I was like, this must be over soon. And then they they keep going for another hour. Each of them was like, like Cate Blanchett turned to the person who was interviewing her and was like, this is a really deep dive when his first question was like, where were you born? And I was like, oh, we're, we're starting at the beginning here. But I think it's it's actually a pretty special event because each of these honorees really gets to like dig deep and talk about their career. And and they seem to sort of enjoy being able to go project by project. And, and there's clips that are shown. And I, I, I actually learned a lot about three actresses that I thought I sort of knew a lot about. Um, it was Angela Bassett the first night, then Kate Blanchett, and then Jamie Lee Curtis. And it was sort of a funny order because they got progressively more... Um, candid, I guess is the word I'll use. So hmm. by the time you hit Jamie Lee Curtis, she was really, I mean, she. we've all talked about how she's been on this awards campaign. Uh, she's She doesn't hide much. And she had some of the funniest quotes I've ever heard. So it, it was a really um, enjoyable event. It's a, it's, it's a nice campaign stop that I feel like um, is actually a pretty special moment with with some of these uh, nominees and it's still going on. So there's been several other nominees since I left. So I think it's a, it was a really nice time. Well, then they went immediately from Santa Barbara or I guess those three and many others to the nominees luncheon, which um, David, you got to attend for us. Um, There's a write up of Santa Barbara that you did Rebecca on the site. And then also the Oscar nominees luncheon that you did, David, um, David provided that you did not get COVID at this very uh, crowded in-person event. Uh, It seems like you you had a great time. (laughs) Uh, I did, uh, except for when I and many, many, many other people got stuck behind the Tom Cruise vortex, um, which is to say... <laughs> that, that sounds like a good and, time, though, i got to be honest. <laughs> it is, and it it was maybe the one thing that felt brand new to this particular campaign cycle. You know, to Rebecca's point, we know a Jamie Lee Curtis wild monologue, we know how these people are messaging on the trail. We know the energy they bring. They know this excitement that follows them. Tom Cruise, this is his first major appearance of the season. And my God, could you feel it inside the room? Uh, I think Austin Butler followed him for about 15 minutes before they finally had a a very long uh, and very intimate conversation. Um, But everyone who walked by him just seemed to kind of glow in his presence and all but bow down and thank him for saving the theaters, yeah. uh, including Steven Spielberg, Guy Kwan, Angela Bassett. I mean, it was truly everybody. And um, to that point, you know, you have at this luncheon, what's so special about it is every single nominee gets their moment. And the vast majority of Oscar nominees are not stars. They are craftspeople, many of whom are rec- being recognized for the first time. And so you have that interesting balance of complete stargazing and watching people who are a little more under the radar really getting a special moment. And that's that's what's unique and nice about this event. I mean, Richard, for us who have not been in L.A. for this cycle, like if someone had told you ahead of time that Tom Cruise would be like the undisputed star of the Oscar luncheon, I might have been a little bit surprised. What about you? 
Yeah, but I think it, it works so well that, like David said, he has been kind of off the campaign. You forget, he is a producer on a Best Picture nominee, and so he was going to show up at some point. And to have it be this grand formal event where nothing is at stake at the, that afternoon, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone can celebrate together. We're the class of 2023, 2022, depending on how you want to frame it. Uh-huh. Um, I believe they said 2023 in, when yes. they took the picture. Like, I think, I think that was, like, well-placed. And, you know, if you talk about, in years past, like, Sony Pictures Classics running a really smart game with the father and holding it till the very end, and it was the last thing people saw, and then Hopkins won. Like, I don't know, maybe you deploy Tom Cruise judiciously and later in the campaign to get mm. everyone saying, wait a second, Top Gun, that was great. And it did save the movie industry. And maybe I should vote for that for Best Picture. Um, I don't know how much strategy was necessarily involved. Maybe he just wanted to show up because it's cool that, you know, he's nominated as a producer. But um, yeah, I mean, I watched the video. Um, There's a long video of just reading every single name as they all get up on the risers and, you know, various stagehands tell people where to stand. And like when Tom Cruise was later in that whole lineup, and when he was announced, like you, even just through the grainy YouTube video, like you could feel the shift in the room. Um, and it was nice that they sat him next to his Mission Impossible co-star Angela Bassett, and they seemed to have a fun little gab. And yeah, I mean, he's a big, big movie star, and probably the biggest in the world at the moment um, for good reason. So uh, it's cool that he was there. I really like seeing him reunite with Steven Spielberg in the video that someone captured because you know, where the world was a weird time for both of them, and a very strange time in uh, Tom Cruise's, you know. Uh, movie star career. Um, but I guess uh, time and Oscar nominations heal all wounds. And, you know, the two of them are natural allies in trying to save movies. And I think Spielberg was really giving Cruz that credit that you were saying, Richard. Like, he he did it. He did the thing that no one thought was possible. We had been talking about for months, I feel like, this summer. Maybe that's because we were starved for other things to talk about before the fall festivals. But, like, where it was like, oh, maybe Top Gun just is the front runner. And I, that that language has changed a lot because of various other projects, you know, getting ahead of it and winning more awards and stuff like that. But like, I don't know, just watching the the reaction to Tom Cruise at this luncheon, I mean, again, from afar, um, maybe I shouldn't have placed it so far down my best picture possible winners. Like it might be a lot higher than I thought. Oh, exact same. And I, I think it is the effect of exactly what you're saying, which is this strategic deployment, which I do think it is to an extent. I think everyone involved in that campaign, it is a Paramount movie. There are a lot of very knowledgeable people involved in it, um, knew exactly what would happen when he walked into that room because he had not been walking into rooms like that for several months. And it's Tom Cruise, and he's been this mythic figure jumping out of planes on Twitter and (laughs) doing these insane things and getting a lot of celebration for it uh, pretty widely. You know, we, we talk about this a lot. When you go to an event like this, um, it's it's one where the eye is going and two, who seems to have some kind of momentum or who seems to be capturing people in a way that we hadn't seen a month ago. And so this was an interesting event because on the one hand, you had this explosion of love for Tom Cruise and as a byproduct, Top Gun Maverick. Um, it did feel like every time a someone involved in that movie got announced, there was a little bit louder applause and for the average like sound editor or something like that. It really was a very present nominee in that room. But on the other hand, I would say the loudest applause came for everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm-hmm. For Stephanie Hsu, for Michelle Yeoh, uh, for the Daniels. Uh, it was really clear that, as we've been noticing, the love for that movie is very strong. Um, so those were the two that popped. One that we've talked about a ton as a front runner, and one that, yeah, as you say, Richard, 
had kind of fallen off from at least our conversations around who's really in it. It may be premature or just I'm still in that cruise glow, that cruise glow of the Beverly Hilton. But Breathing it, it the same seems, air as Tom Cruise has an effect on your yes, brain. He's <laughs> being stuck in a line with hundreds of people trying to get around him. Um, but, you know, I did leave that feeling like the movie was more of a player than I entered. And if it, say, wins something like Producers Guild, where he is being honored, where that is its most friendly audience, it will be taken very seriously. It does feel like PJ will give it an additional boost. And I don't know, and I wasn't there, but seeing on Twitter, like, is there not, Tom Cruise hugged every single famous person in that room from what it looks like on <laughs> yep. social media. And I mean, it's funny that we were just talking about like, what is a movie star with the Hollywood issue? Because like, Tom Cruise is the last great giant movie star from his, I don't know, from his era. And to see him work a room like that is pretty, pretty incredible. And it's funny, I've had a couple conversations with people who feel like Tom Cruise, I mean, feel like Top Gun is a is a real mm-hmm. contender to win Best Picture. And I hadn't really been entertaining that, but it does feel like that's something we should take seriously uh, after this. We had a listener the other week bring up, you know, the, the preferential ballot stuff. And like, my experience since Top Gun came out um, not necessarily talking to people in the industry, but also people in the industry, is just like, what movies have you seen? What did you like? E- everyone has said Top Gun at some point to me, you know? Um, and it just seems to be like a consensus thing. And so maybe people put their little pet favorite at number one and they say, ah, but you know, number two, Top Gun. And then mm. by the num- magic of numbers, <laughs> that's how it wins. Or they put it as number one. I, I don't know. But I think that, that the pop- the enduring popularity of that movie and its star, despite his, you know, some controversial aspects of his personal life, that's a pretty strong ticket, uh, the likes of which you don't see a lot uh, these days. Yeah, there are a lot of Rose reporters like myself who attend this event, and I was talking to one of them, and the person said to me, like, but it's going to be everything everywhere all at once. And I said, but it, can it be that easy? Mm. And on the one hand, it's like it, it is checking all the boxes, but Nomadland aside, every year lately it has not been that easy. <laughs> and so it is, I think it is a valid and worthy effort to think about who the challenger is and when they might emerge. Um, because there are a few different movies that could pop at different places. Like if Banshees were the challenger, it would probably pop at BAFTA. If it were something like Top Gun, it would be a PGA. And, you know, you follow the trail of excitement and then you follow the math for them, how they would perform in a preferential ballot. Um, And you can see the path. And yeah, I think that this movie does have a path and it is worth considering those different paths because it's never that simple anymore with this preferential ballot. And is it any indication? I mean, I mean, look, it's, we're still a month out, but like for a movie like Top Gun Maverick that is ripe for backlash in terms of like its valorization of the American military industrial complex and imperialism. I didn't notice and, that theme in the movie, Richard. I, I'm interested in how you found that uh, in. Well, in you know, cheering on bombing a faceless <laughs> enemy. It doesn't matter who they are. Let's just bomb them. Um, <laughs> you know, like that that issue came up when the movie was out, and people were saying, "Oh, like you know, you're cheering on this horrible thing." And I don't disagree with those people, to be honest, but. But at the same time, like, we're now months later into and it's nom- nominated for Best Picture. I haven't heard a peep like that, you know? Nope. Like, that backlash, if it's coming, has not yet. And um, I also think that's a particular backlash that, like, 
enough people in the academy are just deaf to or immune to or whatever like that that's not going to get under their skin the way that something else might it's kind of such an advantage to not be the front runner right i think that conversation would have happened i mean that's really what i'm saying exactly yeah it's like we would have been having that conversation if we if people really had felt threatened by this film or Mm -hmm. felt like it was the front runner and it has sort of flown flown under the radar guys uh for all (laughs) seasons so i i think that's why it hasn't come up which is sort of i I don't think they did it on purpose but it's a real smart move by the the awards strategist behind it well we should talk about uh schedule for a little bit because you guys mentioned pga which is on the 25th it's the day before the sags which are on the 26th um this coming weekend uh there's the baftas as you mentioned david and then also dga where joseph kaczynski is nominated for top gun like is it crazy to wonder if that is where a Top Gun surge could happen? I've been kind of assuming it's going to be Spielberg because I still think he's going to win Best Director, but not, you got me wondering, David. I'm wondering. I it, This feels like a major stop. This feels like a real potential turning point in the race. Um, you know, last year we knew Jane Campion was going to win Director regardless of whether or not Power of the Dog won Best Picture. Um, and that can happen sometimes, like Alfonso Cuaron, really in both of his the years that he won. But this year, I I don't know. Spielberg winning would affirm he can still win director without winning picture, but it's a pretty fluid race. And anyone else who wins it, I think, immediately emerges as, if not the challenger, uh, if not the you know new frontrunner, then the challenger. Um, and then if everything ever all at once wins the DGA, it is the undisputed frontrunner for Best Picture and would be very difficult to take it down, I think. In the same way that like Ben Affleck won for Argo here, mm. even though he wasn't even nominated by the directing branch at the Academy, um, the DGA can sometimes tip the race for picture even more than director. So then what if Kaczynski wins director and then a DGA? Yeah, that's a great example. He's not like, nominated if- at the Oscars, so... If Kaczynski wins director, I would I would predict Top Gun Maverick to win Best Picture, to be honest with you. Whoa. That didn't even occur to he's... me like a week ago. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, how, how where is the love for that movie is the question. Mm-hmm. If there's that much love for the movie in the Directors Guild, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big statement. Yeah, that would be huge if that happens. That would be a fascinating... Tw- I mean, this this year of movies has been so dominated by all the uncertainty about the box office. And like, are movies back? Can they come back? Will anyone go see anything? And for Top Gun Maverick to win Best Picture, like, it makes a certain kind of sense. It is, in many ways, the movie of 2022, more so than The Fablemans or everything everywhere all at once. Or, like, even Avatar, really, like, which made more money, but, like, I don't think has the same kind of, like, cultural dominance that um, Top Gun really still does. And that's coming yeah, from inter- me, a big Avatar fan, so please. <laughs> it, I was just going to say, it is interesting how little of a presence you felt of Avatar in that room at the luncheon. Who was uh, there? Cameron. I mean, I guess a bunch of the... Um, the John Lando, the producer, was there. Some of the below-the-line folks who were nominated. But um, for a movie that is already one of the highest-grossing movies of all time, and that is a Best Picture nominee, yeah, it was, it was very quiet. And all that noise about you know, impact on movie theaters, impact on cinema went to Top Gun Maverick, it felt like. That's so interesting. I'm curious, you know, I noticed there were some notable people missing and I'm curious of not having like Andrea Riseborough there or uh, Barry Keoghan, if that, if you felt that they were sort of people missing from that room or if it didn't matter because it's so packed anyway. 
Yeah, you do notice. Um, I think Barry less so because the Banshee's crew is so fun. And Colin Farrell and Carrie Condon are just everywhere and having a great time. And Martin McDonough was there as well. So Brendan Gleeson was there too, right? Just Brendan Gleeson yeah. was there. Yeah, I mean, maybe not as social as, <laughs> as Carrie or Colin. Uh, but yes, he was there. He was smiling. Um, but I think you noticed really the best actress category. I thought it was fascinating that both Anna Darmus and Andrea Riseborough were not there. Two, in their own ways, controversial nominees. Anna Moore for her movie, Andrea Riseborough for reasons I refuse to get into. We will go back again. and listen to the archives. If we've, yes, we've been there. yes. Listen to the past month of episodes <laughs> of Little Gold Men. Um, but you had Kate and Rochelle there, uh, and they both looked amazing. They are really running a tight race. It's the kind of thing where if the frontrunners are there, you notice, and if the people who are challenging that are not there, it, it almost tightens further and it, it narrows. Um, so that that's really where I noticed it, um, was in that that particular category. Well, you mentioned Kate Blanchett, and I realize we haven't taken the moment to promote another exciting uh, issue of Vanity Fair that is out this week, which is the uh, second awards issue uh, with Kate Blanchett on the cover and a cover story written by one David Canfield. Um, David, I asked Britt how he's feeling with his uh, child out in the world. How are you feeling? I'm feeling very relieved. This was a this was an undertaking for sure. <laughs> Kate Blanchett is a, a fascinating, tricky person uh, to profile, but uh, it was a really a, a piece that I am I'm proud of, and that took really, really a lot of work just to sort of get my head around it. So I'm glad it's over. Well, she's I mean, it's kind of part of her Oscar season narrative too. Like she's been really famous for a really long time. She has two Oscars. Like it's not like there's new discoveries to be made about Kate Blanchett. I don't think even more so than like. Michelle Yeoh, who's had a long career but hasn't necessarily gotten the same level of attention. Um, but I think your story just does so well is kind of get into how her brain works and how she's still grappling with things about her career and about Tar and about the roles that she's played. Like, it really kind of gave her space to wrestle. Kate Blanchett wrestles with Kate Blanchett in some way, um, which was a, a not an easy thing to pull off. Yeah, and that was a really organic result of what it was like to spend some time with her. <laughs> Um, because I, I really had no idea what to expect. And two things for me have really emerged in her campaign this season. One is the shadow of Lydia Tarr, real or not. She is very real to Kate Blanchett. And it is quite clear that she has not shaken this role, this experience. And there is something to listening to her try to figure that out and struggling to at times about what she connected to in the material, what is kind of haunting her about the experience, which I think is a fair word to use based on, you know, my experience with her and my understanding of what it was like for her. Um, and then the other th element of it is this incredibly larger than life presence she occupies at this point in Hollywood, in pop culture, a lot of the folks I spoke with about her, ranging from you know character actors who worked with her a lot, like Melanie Linsky and Bruce Greenwood, to Oscar-winning directors like Martin Scorsese and Alejandro Iñárritu, all talk about her as if she is this figure who, when she enters a room, not only I think it was David Hare, the playwright, who told me you, there is zero possibility of not knowing she is in that room, and then all eyes get going toward her and feeling like you are in the presence of something greater than human, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, you know, kind of trying to get at that a little bit and talking to, you know, those who've worked with her and also talking to her about that. And um, yeah, 
this story is the result of my very complicated feelings are of, of around all that, which I've tried to articulate and maybe didn't so well. So I apologize. I mean, Rebecca, you were just in a room with her. Is that true? You can't not know that Kate Blanchett's in the room with you? A hundred percent. I felt like David did such a great job of capturing that, even from like his lead anecdote. And and uh, there is something just so mesmerizing about her that is sort of hard to put into words. Um, and I'm looking up to your Looking forward to your follow-up piece, David, on the increased demand of sheep's milk, which I assume is going to happen. I think we all need to have a glass of sheep's milk uh, on the day of the Oscars. Oh, I was planning on a sheep's milk latte. If I have to commit to the full sheep's milk, I mean, for Kate, no, no, we'll do a latte. Okay. We'll, do, we'll do a latte. That's what she wants. I need to, to ease do, my so. way into sheep's milk. I think. I think the true discovery of the piece was a friend texting me. He said, "Wait, David Canfield lived in New Zealand." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was like, I don't think I knew that. Indeed, but. indeed. Uh, he reveals it. So I also just like our commitment to including Melanie Linsky in as many locations and ways as we can. Um, she's she's an excellent voice in your piece, as she has been in every other interview we've ever done with her. On a on a purely like appreciative note, she gives a great secondary interview, and there is a particular art to that of giving you great, you know, anecdotes and. And this was actually another interesting part of reporting out the story. When I spoke to Bruce Greenwood, he told me at the end of our interview, I really wanted to come up with like a great image and anecdote for you because like Kate deserves that. And people actually putting effort into planning to talk about her was a first for me. And I, that, that also kind of informed the tone of the story, I think. Live your life in a way that makes Bruce Greenwood want to tell a good story about you. I think I can use that going forward. Um, well, the awards issue uh, is going out to awards voters now, and uh, we'll, the pieces will continue rolling out online. I don't want to spoil anything, so maybe we'll save more discussion of it next week. Uh, Rebecca, you've got some great pieces in it. I got to do some fun interviews, too. Richard, you've got a great essay kind of breaking down the acting race. Um, so we'll talk more about it. So should we close by saying who we think is going to win, Kate or Michelle? <laughs> do we want to do a temperature <laughs> check? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I, you were, you said, you talked about being tight race, David, at the luncheon. And, you know, we all, you know, now got this sense about Top Gun from it. Is there any sense of uh, distance getting between the two of them right now? I truly think it's so close. I really, it is a nail biter. It's a nail biter. And Richard, I think you said last week, this is one of those weird years where SAG isn't going to tell us anything. I mm-hmm. think that's totally true. I feel like it is not going to be known until the night of. Right now, I would predict Kate Blanchett purely because she's just won a little bit more. And the undeniability of that performance has yet to be um, punctured, I guess. And also, it's a really uh, major way to give that movie an award. Where yes. you know it it's, it's, has stiff competition elsewhere. I mean, it has stiff competition in Best Actress, but... She is that movie. She is Tar, you know? And I feel like if people want... Obviously, the Academy liked that movie because they got nominations I didn't expect it to get in editing and... Um, cinema, was it score or cinematography? Yeah. Cinematography, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's the slight edge in the, the, the disadvantage to Michelle Yeoh, weirdly, is that her movie is so widely liked and is likely to win elsewhere um, that mm-hmm. she could kind of weirdly be the victim of that. Yeah, I saw Jamie Lee Curtis say this, and it might have been at Santa Barbara, actually, Rebecca, you can tell me, that basically the re- the reason that you can call me Oscar nominee Jamie Lee Curtis is because of Michelle Yeoh. Like, she basically credited Michelle Yeoh as the guiding force of that movie, which the Daniels have done as well. You know, they, they couldn't have made that movie without someone of her stature. So the idea of everything, everywhere, all at once, best picture victory being for her, like, 
I guess if I'm Michelle Yeoh, I feel good about that. If maybe I would also like the Oscar to take home, but it it is a, it does really make sense as a trade off, as you were saying, Richard. Rebecca, who do you predict? <laughs> I th- I, th- I would predict Kate Blanchett. As well. I mean, in our jobs, I think we lean so much on precursors and wh- and wh- who's won yeah. what before. So I think we have to do less of that because things have been getting more unpredictable. Um, I feel like the everything everywhere. All at Once campaign has maybe realized that Michelle is the one category where she has a huge battle and have been mentioning it more, as Jamie Lee Curtis did, that this movie could not have been made without her. Um, and, you know, it to me, I, I would love to see her win. And I think it's so neck and neck that it could still happen. Um, but, yeah, if we're if we're looking at the numbers, it feels like Kate's is definitely still a, a slight ahead. One thing I keep seeing thrown out uh, online, which I totally understand why, is like, but Kate Blanchett already has two. And I, and I think there has been precedent in the past of the Academy trying to spread that wealth over the years. But like, not really. You know, Frances no. McDormand winning, you know, within, what, two years of itself. I mean, Hilary Swank did. Oh, that was a long time ago at this point. But like, uh, Mahershala Ali, uh, Christoph Waltz, like, I don't know that that metric is really uh, like applied a- at all these days. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it would be nice if it was. But <laughs> yeah, sure. Like, you're, if you win one, you're not eligible for another one for five years or something. Uh, and in your piece, David, you kind of mentioned the company that she would be in as a three. I think you know Meryl Streep. Uh, who else would Bergman. she be joining? Ingrid Bergman, and then they're they're all they would all be behind Catherine Hepburn with four. Um, you know, if anyone's going to join that company, Kate Blanchett is worthy of it. So that seems like it would not stop people. Frances McDormand is the other one, and she won uh, a pretty fluid race for a movie that was a big overall contender, obviously won Best Picture, Best Director. Um, But I remember that talking point in that year. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's an asterisk year, et cetera. But the question was, is she really going to win again for her? What was a, you know, pretty subtle performance? I thought a beautiful one, but, and she did. And the, they, the Academy votes for who they want to win. And I, I, I agree with Richard. They don't really care if you've just won. In fact, that might even, yeah. for some, you know, enhance the possibility of you know anointing them in a special way. And maybe you know, if Kate Blanchett wins, she could be like, "No, I've won two Oscars for a Martin Scorsese film and a Todd Field film. There is not a third film with from a different director." That I don't know what you're talking about. Also, that. Speaking of asterisks. <laughs> um, maybe to wrap it up, uh, should we do a similar gut check on Best Actor? Um, David, you mentioned Austin Butler kind of being in the Tom Cruise orbit and, you know, the Banshees crew being around. Did you get any read on um, who's popping in that group? So as I'm watching Austin Butler closely in Tom Cruise's ear, laughing and listening intently, I thought to myself on the spot, this is how he wins. Mm. Um, so I'm predicting Austin Butler now. Ooh. Was Brendan Fraser there? Yes, yeah. he was. And he was very, he was, he was very, he was all over. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, ever since the nominations came out and the whale underperformed outside of the acting branch, um, it's harder to see his path. And I just didn't get the, you know, there wasn't that thunderous, you know, comeback applause mm. for him. Uh, in fact, Colin Farrell got louder applause than he did, which and it can sound so stupid measuring the exact volume of <laughs> it's applause, but at these things, it, it really is informative. Coda got the most applause. Parasite got the most applause. It does tell us a lot. And uh, yeah, I also thought Colin Farrell uh, popped a lot. So, But and, right now I'm going with Austin Butler. And look, there's precedent for this. 
in the case of Mickey Rourke, the nomination was the comeback. In the case of Michael mm-hmm. Keaton, the nomination was the comeback. Mm. It wasn't the win. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're looking at at this point. It's interesting that you ask, was he there? Because I feel like I also didn't know if he was there. And, and I know we're just taking this in from afar. But it, it when we're talking about heat, it does feel like... I don't know. I think I'm still going with Colin for the moment, but we'll, we'll see. We've got SAG to go and, uh, you know, a couple other things. But uh, to me, it feels like Colin versus Austin at the at the moment as well. Do we feel like SAG could tell us who's winning Best Actor, unlike Best Actress? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I don't know that it's as close necessarily. I just think we don't know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because there's kind of a wild card in Brendan Fraser. And also... I think in this movie's case, like Colin, like BAFTA, if Colin Farrell wins BAFTA, I don't think that necessarily means he wins the Oscar. It just means he kind of has to win that. Mm-hmm. So it's a different set of dynamics. Um, whereas with Kate and Michelle, like it can be any number of seesawing, but I, I think the margin is thin enough where, you know, and the groups are different enough where it doesn't, it's not really make or break in the same way. Yeah. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. I feel like we should go ahead and let you all know that next week we're doing our 2003 Oscars flashback episode, bringing back our friends Joe Reed and Chris File to talk about the 2003 ceremony, the movies in 2002. We'll be talking about Chicago and the hours, etc. So, um, you know, if you want to go brush up on your acceptance speeches or anything else to to watch along with us, it's going to be really fun. Uh, and of course, we'll talk about DGA, BAFTA, and all the other awards news of this year, not just 2003. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram in the meantime at vf awards insider or on twitter on our own i am at katie rich and richard rylos and david david canfield 97 and rebecca rebecca m ford and the hollywood issue is on newsstands the awards insider issue is in your mailbox if you're an awards voter or you can read the stories online um we have so much good stuff to promote what a great time of year this is Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of watching Brianna float above Arizona during the Super Bowl halftime show goes to Rebecca Ford. There is something just so mesmerizing about her. 